again for joining us at Prairie View this morning. Earlier this year, back in the spring or summer, we spent a few weeks reading the book of First Peter, and we titled that sermon series, Elect Exiles. Peter wrote that first letter to a number of churches that all had one thing in common. They were facing significant opposition from the world around them. But Peter assured those believers that they were loved and accepted by God. In that sense, they were elect, even though they were hated and rejected by their surrounding culture. In that sense, they were exiles. But in addition to this assurance of their identity in Christ, Peter also gave those believers challenging guidance about how to live in the hostile environment they found themselves in. He didn't just talk about who they are in Christ. Peter instructed them about how they should live in Christ. He told them to live in a manner that would refute the false accusations that their opponents made against them. He challenged them to live in a manner that puts the truth of the gospel on display. He told them to live in a manner that glorifies God. More specifically, he told them to let their holiness do the talking. Suffer hardships well. Let their relationships reflect the humility and service of Jesus. Appoint and submit yourselves to godly leadership. And of course, last but not least, be prepared to share the hope that you have in Christ that so many in their world lacked. But today we begin the first of three weeks in Second Peter, which is a sequel of sorts to that first letter. But while the theme of First Peter was living as elect exiles, this series will focus more on the theme of living as faithful witnesses. Now, a faithful witness is someone who knows the truth and announces the truth to all who will listen. A faithful witness is honest about what they've seen and willing to share it with those who haven't seen it. And a faithful witness for Christ, the kind of person that Peter challenges his audience and challenges us to be, doesn't just bear witness with words, though words are certainly important. We bear witness with our actions. We don't just share the truth of the gospel by what we say. We display the truth of the gospel by how we live. So with that, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read any further, let's pray together as a church. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for an extra hour of sleep. I pray that we're all well rested. Father, be with us as we open up your word. Uh, as Mark just mentioned, uh, help us to be active listeners, attentive listeners to what it is you have to say to us today. Uh, Father, give us ears to hear and open minds and open hearts uh, to what your word will teach us. And Father, I pray that as we come to Second Peter, uh, we would be reminded and challenged not just of who we are in Christ, but how we are to live in Christ, uh, that we might be fruitful disciples in this world. And Father, be with Shauna Ingram, uh, who Joshua mentioned uh, recently lost her mother. I pray that you'd be with her and her family as they grieve. Uh, be with Pioneer Bible Translators as we welcome them here next week. I pray they would have safe travels. Uh, Father, we pray for Monica Rex, who, as we mentioned last week, fell. Uh, but thankfully, she's 
recovering well, and we pray that that would continue. And Father, be with us as we worship. I pray that what we say and what we do here will be not just beneficial and encouraging for us, but glorifying for you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by reading 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to read the beginning of the passage, and then we're going to read the end of the passage, and then we'll come back to the main content in the middle. So, beginning with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So as Peter begins, he identifies himself as an apostle, but he also refers to himself as a servant. On the one hand, he wants his audience to know that he possesses a certain level of authority when it comes to teaching the truth about Christ. He's someone worth listening to. But on the other hand, he's not abusively or arrogantly flaunting his authority either. Like those believers reading his letter, when it all comes down to it, he too is simply a servant of Christ. Peter stresses this again when he says that his readers have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Even though not every believer is an apostle, every believer is equally called and loved. And used by God. And so while these believers may not have ever seen Jesus face to face, they may not have ever had a conversation with him. They may not have the stories that Peter has. Peter reassures them that their faith is just as valid as his. But then let's look at the end. Second Peter chapter one, starting in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We'll talk about these qualities here in just a moment. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter's writing this letter to teach these congregations about something they already know, something they've heard plenty of times before. But Peter believes this is so important that he wants them to hear it again. In fact, it's some of the last words they will ever hear him say before he dies. He wants to drill this stuff into their heads. And Peter knows and God knows that we need reminders especially about things that really matter. We need to be regularly reminded of the core truths of our faith, the core truths of Christ, things of eternal significance. I mean, let's be honest, we can very easily forget things. And when we forget these things, these eternal core truths of our faith, we can find ourselves in a sinful mess of our own making. If you don't believe me, spend about five minutes reading the Old Testament, because just about every single one of the Israelites problems start when they forget the truth about who God is. 
when they forget the truth about who they are and when they forget the truth about how they're called to live in light of that. Forgetting is a very dangerous thing for the believer. And Peter does not want these people to forget the things that matter. But Peter is concerned to give them this review of things, not just because they're prone to forget like we are as well. He wants to remind them of these things because he knows that he's about to die. And put it all together and look at it this way. Second Peter is one of the latest written letters in the New Testament, perhaps the latest of them all. So by now, Peter may be one of only a few left from that first generation of Christians. Many of the other apostles have likely died by now. That first generation of believers is starting to die off. And as Peter prepares himself for his death, he makes a point to pass on the core teachings and the core practices of the Christian faith to the next generation of believers before he goes. Now, we haven't even gotten to the main content of verses 1 through 15 yet, but I want to stop for a moment to point out some wisdom that Peter has already offered. One of the challenges that has rightly concerned the church and rightly concerned Christian parents over the years is how we can effectively pass on the faith to those who will come after us. In the Old Testament, this was presented as the primary responsibility of an Israelite parent to teach their children the truth about God. The primary responsibility was not about making sure their kids were set up for economic success. The primary responsibility was not about making sure their kids were well adjusted to society around them. The primary responsibility was teaching the next generation the truth about God. And while that's not the main point of this passage, and it's not the main point of this sermon, it's too important to gloss over it. And I do think Peter gives us a few quick pieces of guidance. Number one, we see this word over and over again in verses 12 through 15. It's the word remind. I write you to remind you. I want you to recall these things. I'm giving you a reminder. One piece of guidance that we would do well to take into account is our responsibility to remind the next generation of the core teachings and practices of our faith, rather than simply assuming that they know them. Another piece of guidance is to pass on not only beliefs or doctrines that you hold in your head. Don't just teach the next generation the way you're supposed to think as a Christian. But pass on practices of the faith as well. And then thirdly, don't just tell the next generation what to believe. Show them what a Christian life looks like. Now, of course, ultimately, it's not up to us to make sure that every single person in the next generation believes and practices the Christian faith. We can't control that. Ultimately, that's a matter between them and God. We as a church or we as parents may do everything right and have a child leave the faith behind. Or conversely, we may do everything wrong. And yet, by the grace of God, that child would embrace Christ. But as we get older and as the next generation of believers gets older as well, 
We should have the same priorities that Peter had in this letter. Prioritizing that those who come after us would recall the teachings, recall the practices of the Christian faith that we expose them to. We should prioritize that we have been good, though not perfect, examples of what a Christian life looks like. In the big scheme of things, we can't control whether or not someone comes to faith in Christ. We can't manufacture Christians just through simply doing all the right things in our homes or in our church. But we can control whether or not the next generation has seen and heard the teachings and practices of the Christian faith. And they've seen an example of what life looks like for a follower of Jesus. But let's move on to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, the main content of our passage today. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Peter starts off by assuring us that God has given us all the tools we need to live as his people. All things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given us the resources necessary to be his faithful witnesses in a world that doesn't know him. We have what we need to inherit the promises that God has given us. Justification, adoption as his children, salvation in eternity. We have what we need to look more like Christ and look less like the world around us. But then Peter dives into what has been referred to by many terms. Some people call these next verses Christian ethics, or some people call it discipleship, or some people maybe sneeringly call it holy living. But the point of these next few verses is that Peter reminds us not just of who we are in Christ, Though that is of central importance, he reminds us also of what our lives ought to look like in Christ. And that takes us to verse 5. Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So Peter gives us this list of Christian qualities. And it's appropriate that he would start out with faith. As we discussed in the month of October, we are justified or declared righteous by God through faith in Christ, not through works. But this kind of faith, this justifying faith, certainly leads to good works. The kinds of works and the kinds of qualities that Peter discusses in these verses. Paul showed us that in the life of Abraham. James emphasizes it even more when he says that faith without works is dead. Abraham's life of obedience proved the validity of his faith. A faith that doesn't transform us. A faith that doesn't change us you have to wonder, is really 
whether or not it's a faith at all. All the qualities and traits and characteristics and practices, whatever you want to call them that Peter lists, all of these things spring directly out of faith. So let's look at the list briefly. The first word is virtue, a word that we don't use a ton in our day and age. But when we hear virtue, we might think it's simply doing the right thing. But is it possible that it's something more? Ancient philosophers obsessed over this topic of virtue. They sat around constantly and talked and wrote about what it looks like to live the good life. What is a good life? How should we live in relation to our families and our larger society and our neighbors? How do we pursue this good life? Well, theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. Virtue is not simply another way of saying goodness. The word has sometimes been flattened out like that, perhaps because we instinctively want to escape its challenge. But that isn't its strict meaning. Virtue, in this strict sense, is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right but doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousand and first time, When it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. On that thousand and first occasion, it does indeed look as if it just happens. But reflection tells us that it doesn't just happen as easily as that. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Like an acquired taste, such choices and actions which started off being practiced with difficulty, ended up being second nature. So what does Christian virtue look like? Well, Christian virtue is that slow, steady, but sure process of becoming more like Christ. It's that process of learning how to live as a believer. It's that process guided by the Holy Spirit within us, bearing fruit within us to make us look more like Christ. It doesn't come naturally to us. It doesn't always feel automatic. But by God's grace, we can become more like Christ. Our decisions can become more honoring to God. We can begin to pursue godliness, as Peter said in verse 3. He encourages us to live this life of virtue, not just so that our lives can be easier, not just because we want some philosophical answers about what the good life really is, but so that God would be glorified. But he goes from virtue to the knowledge. Theologian J.I. Packer says that we were created above all else to know God, to know God. For our day and age, the number one way of knowing God is through none other than his word. He wants to be known by us. He invites us to know him. And his word is the first place that we look. We go from knowledge to self-control. Because rather than our actions being dictated by our unpredictable and fallen appetites, our unpredictable and fallen passions, we as believers learn self-control. The Holy Spirit guides us as we learn to devote ourselves more to the things of God, 
and less to the things of the world. We go to steadfastness because being a faithful witness implies knowing and announcing the truth about God for the long haul. Through the ups and downs, the trial and error, the joys and sorrows of being a disciple of Jesus. This life of following Christ will require steadfastness because it won't always be smooth and it won't always be easy. From there we go to godliness because Peter wants us not just to know a lot about God, but he wants us to slowly and surely become more like Christ. To the point that people have a better idea of who Jesus is simply by spending time with us. Then we get to brotherly affection. Developing a deeper love for the family of God. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they're hard to love. Or even when they don't love you back. And he ends the list with simply the word love. General love. Displaying the love of Christ, not just for the family of God, not just for our fellow believers, but for the entire world to see. So Peter reminds us not just of who we are in Christ, but he reminds us of how we are called to live in Christ. He reminds us of the qualities, the traits, the practices that a person with the Holy Spirit living inside of them simply can't help but begin to display. Sometimes we hear this doctrine of justification by faith that we talked about in the past few weeks. And many people throughout history have used that as justification, no pun intended, to say that our works really don't matter. That our lives really don't matter as long as we believe the right things. As long as we hold the right doctrines about who Christ is and what he did. And it's true that we are not justified by our works. We are not justified by doing the right thing and displaying these qualities. But the person who is justified will display these qualities. It won't always be smooth. It won't always be easy. It might not come naturally. In fact, it won't come naturally. And it certainly won't happen overnight. But this is the life that we are called to. This is the life that God has given us. Let's look to verse 8 as we move forward. Peter says there, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, all the things he just listed, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So why the emphasis on these qualities? It's because Peter wants these believers to be fruitful. He wants them to be effective. And he's concerned that if they lack these qualities, they won't be fruitful. They won't be effective. You know, one of the easiest criticisms that people often level at Christians is that we're hypocrites. And nobody likes a hypocrite. And unfortunately, we Christians are often far too good at feeding that criticism and giving people ammo for that criticism. People don't like the fact that to be a hypocrite is the total opposite of being a faithful witness. A hypocrite is someone who knows the truth but does something else. 
A faithful witness is one who knows the truth and announces the truth with their words and with their lives. Now, of course, at some level, we're all hypocrites. Every single one of us will still sin. Every single one of us will still fall. We don't always live in a manner consistent with our beliefs and thank God for his grace in that. And realistically, no reasonable person should expect a Christian's life to be perfect just because they're a follower of Jesus. But at the same time, as Peter clearly warns here, claiming the name Christian, but failing to pursue these qualities in our lives will make us ineffective, will make us unfruitful, and often causes great harm to the credibility of believers. I found recently, especially with our kids, that do as I say and not as I do is not a very good strategy for teaching right from wrong. In the same way, it's not a good strategy for bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. We can't talk about virtue. We can't talk about godliness. We can't talk about knowledge and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love. We can't just talk about those things. We live those things out. We put those things on display for the world. And the world notices when those things are so greatly lacking everywhere else. We will not bear fruit. We will not be effective if we're only faithful witnesses with our words. We're called to be faithful witnesses with the quality of our lives as well. But then look back for a moment again at verses 8 and 9. As I was reading this passage this week, I found these verses really interesting. And maybe this is just me going down a rabbit trail. But I see some things in these two verses that should sound familiar. That it has in common with another memorable passage in the New Testament. And that's in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. We read in that passage. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So if you put these two passages side by side, you see some things that they have in common. Peter says, if you don't display these qualities, if you don't live out these qualities, then you're blind. You're blind and you've forgotten who you are, forgiven and called by God. And you will fail to bear fruit. You'll fail to be effective. But then James says, very similarly, if you say you believe the word, if you're a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, then you don't see yourself very clearly. And in a way that's kind of hard to believe, it's like looking in a mirror and then immediately forgetting what you look like. So both passages talk about the dangers of not seeing clearly who God has called us to be. Both passages talk about the dangers of forgetting what God has done for us. 
And in both passages, things don't end well for the hypocrite. Things don't end well for the one who hears the word but doesn't do the word. The faithful witness is the one who bears fruit. The faithful witness is the one who is effective. And the faithful witness is blessed. The person who attempts to bear witness to the truths of God with their words, but not with their lives, is simply living a lie. Now, of course, passages like these in Scripture, when you read them, can hit you like a ton of bricks. Because unless you're totally full of yourself, you can probably pinpoint an area of your life that doesn't match up with the words that you speak. You could probably go back to that list of characteristics or qualities in First Peter, and you could point one out and say, you know what? I'm not a very good example in that area. I'm not a good example of steadfastness. I'm God, not a good example of godliness. I'm not a good example of brotherly affection. You could come to one of these passages and maybe leave discouraged and frustrated with yourself. But before you think Peter is being too harsh, think back on his history. We're talking about the guy who so confidently announced that he would never abandon Jesus, even if it meant dying. And then he proceeded to be a total hypocrite at Jesus' trial. He conveniently forgot who Jesus was when people asked him. Before you think Peter is being too harsh, keep in mind that he's writing as a man with first-hand experience of what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to be a hypocrite. He knows what it's like to say one thing and do another. He knows what it's like to profess with his mouth that he's a believer in Jesus, only to display the exact opposite with his actions. So before you think Peter is being a jerk, before you think he's being too harsh, keep in mind that he is a living, breathing example of the mercy and grace that God shows to forgetful and blind and hypocritical disciples of Jesus. Peter wasn't always a faithful witness, but God graciously forgave him and restored him. But even though he was forgiven, and even though he was restored, Peter still wants his audience and still wants us not to commit the same sin that he committed. He's like that loving father who wants his kids to be a better man than he is. In the same way, Peter wants this next generation of believers, generations of believers like ours, to be better and more fruitful witnesses than he was, to be more effective. But as we close, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Peter says there, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter writes that his audience might be fruitful disciples. He wants us to never fall, to be faithful witnesses until the very end, when we will receive our reward just like he's about to receive his. So he reminds us not just of who we are in Christ, 
but reminds us of what our lives ought to look like in Christ. And again, the beautiful news of verse 3 is that God has granted us all things that pertain to this life and godliness. He's given us his word to develop these qualities within us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to prune us and shape us into the kind of people Peter talks about. So as we read 2 Peter, we're reading a letter written by a man who's a perfect example of what it's like to fail in this life of discipleship. He's a perfect example of God's mercy and grace to fallen disciples. And in light of that, we can follow Christ not out of fear of messing up, but with assurance and with confidence and peace and joy and gratitude. Peter is the first example of someone who failed to display all these qualities, and yet God forgave him. And God used him in amazing ways. Peter is an example of how we aren't called to be perfect witnesses. That's a calling that we would never reach in this life. But we are called to be faithful witnesses. We know who we are in Christ. We know how it is that we're called to live. I pray that with the power of God and the grace of God behind us, we would live here. Leave here. That's what I meant. Not live here. Leave here. What a way to wrap up a sermon. Talk about a powerful conclusion. But that we would leave here as his faithful witnesses. That we would bear witness to Christ, not just with our words, but with the qualities of our lives. For the sake of those believers who will come after us. For the sake of those believers who aren't believers yet, but will be someday. I pray that we would bear witness, that we would bear fruit, and that we would be effective. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy to us. Anytime we come to scripture, we read these lists of qualities, we read these lists of virtues, and we might be overwhelmed or intimidated and immediately think of all the ways that we're falling short. Think of all the ways that we're not living up to the standards And it may cause us fear, it may cause us anxiety, it may cause us shame. But thank you that you're developing these qualities within us. That you've given us the things we need that pertain to life and godliness. It might not always be easy to see how we're growing in these areas. The growth might not always be as fast as we like or as consistent as we like. And we might get frustrated sometimes with the way we live, and the sometimes hypocritical things that we do. But Father, you love us, you care for us, you forgive us, you build us up like you did with Peter when he fell. So Father, as we leave here, I pray that we would leave knowing that we won't be perfect witnesses. We will mess up, we will fall. But I pray that we would trust you to help us be faithful witnesses over the long haul, through the ups and downs. I pray that we would bear fruit. I pray that we would be effective, not for our glory, not so that people would look at us and be amazed at how good our lives are and how moral we are and how upstanding we are, 
but rather people would look at us, see these qualities, and give you glory for it. We love you. We thank you for Christ, the perfect example of godliness and steadfastness. Perfect examples of what it means to be one of your people. Thank you that he died for us. And Father, I pray that by your grace we would live for him. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.